Hey everybody, I'm Cooch. And I'm Conan. All right, everybody, I am with my partner in crime, Dr. Jeff Conan. And uh, this episode, we're going to talk about organizational structure of leadership and what leadership looks like from an organizational structure. And of course, we are going to poke the bear today in particular. And we're going to uh, of course, we're talking organizations in general, but many of our examples and our experiences have to do with our very own organizations related to athletic training. So we will be very, we offer this invitation now, we will offer the invitation at the end. If you have thoughts or ideas on this, we welcome your comments and we'd love to hear what you have to say about it. So please reach out to us and, and add your two cents for or against. So today, Matt, your partner in crime, is more than likely going to commit a few verbal misdemeanors. And uh, it, it, it's not out of the question that someone might commit a felony against me today. <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Uh, that's, that's, that's important to know. And a good disclaimer. Again, just keep in mind, again, I know we've said this many times on previous episodes, but these aren't scripted podcasts so <laughs> we very much kind of just go off the cuff and and might say things without fully thinking them through and we have been known from time to time to say things uh, that we don't necessarily have a robust body of literature behind it to support um, <laughs> that being said um we do use our emotions and our feelings here on this on this as but well. it is but, evidence Expert yeah. opinion is the lowest form of evidence. I'll tell you. I, I, I make sure my students know that very well, too. It is evidence, but it is at the low bottom of the hierarchy. <laughs> um, so, any rate, so organizational leader, I just, it'd be interesting to talk just organizational leadership in general before we get anything specific. Is a, is a whole branch and discipline of leadership in and of itself. We talk about personal leadership and, and then there's organizational leadership, leadership development. And, and it's, a, it's actually a very interesting space. But when you're talking about organizational leadership, what we really mean is shared leadership. Um, you know, there's a traditional idea that we have in our culture that the leader is the CEO, the top of the pyramid, the buck stops here kind of a thing. And, and that leader sets the culture, sets the tone, sets the attitude. And, and, and that's one type of leadership. But that leadership really only works as an effective if it's a long-term situation and it's more of a medium to small size organization where they can influence that like a like the owner and founder of a company, right? Starts it and they remain CEO, et cetera. In the situations we're talking about in an organizational context, such as the NATA or our state associations or our districts, they are shared leadership responsibilities. Our leaders are elected or appointed uh, for limited terms. They come and go. Um, so it's not so it's not so much dependent on them to set the culture. It's more the members' uh, responsibility and things like that. So that's a big difference. First of all, and that's another major, 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 major mistake that's made in a leadership philosophy kind of way is we make assumptions that leadership is leadership across the board. And that's just not the case. The type of organization matters. The constituencies in the organizations matter. The, the structure of how boards are developed really matter. And that's actually what you wanted to talk about and what we're going to talk about today is the qualifications to be a leader 
and what leader really means in athletic training, the qualifications to get on these elected board positions, or sometimes they're appointed and all that. And I know you've got some things to say about it, either at the state level, district level, or national level. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Conan to uh, start his misdemeanors. All right. So put your seatbelt on. Uh, you know where I want to start with this, though, is you and I hosted a, a, a really remarkable classroom Zoom session about two weeks ago. And your good friend Trevor Bates said something, and I, I don't want to misquote him, so help me out here. But I think he said something to the like of the least powerful position he's been in is that of president yes. of a university. Yes, right? Something to that like, yep. which, as we know, as people develop more confidence and they're in positions of leadership, which we call positional power by title. Um, oftentimes, too many people don't recognize the fact that, um, yes, they can dictate the tone of where it goes, but if they get too autocratic in nature, it creates leadership failure. And so I think the theme of what we want to talk about today is, should people be placed in leadership positions based upon their qualifications and how those qualifications are perceived and agreed upon by others who elect them in those spots, or should they be based there solely on longevity? In other words, they've paid their dues. That's a common quote we hear in our profession, right? You want to go to the NFL, you got to pay your dues and you got to do all these things. Well, unfortunately or fortunately, the way our leadership organizational structure works right now, it's a little bit of pay your dues. And, and I'm not saying there's nothing to be said about experience that comes along with those times. Experience is certainly critical. We have established what we call a district model that sits between the sort of the state leadership and our national board leadership. And this model, as we know, has worked forever. And in that process, when I say work forever, we've had you know, high quality regional meetings. We recognize people for the work that they do tremendous networking at these meetings. But unfortunately, I think what's happened over time, and, and I think a fair amount of people out there listening to me and Matt will agree with this, is that our association has outgrown this model. And what I mean by that is, if the purpose of our association is to advance the profession, advancements are historically made at state levels. They're made at legislative halls, based on licensure practice acts. There is absolutely no other place where a district has an influence per se on state legislation. It just doesn't work that way. And I'm not gonna use the argument and say, well, no other profession does this. We're the only one left doing it because that's not a good argument because it actually worked this way for many, many years. And I'm not so sure we can't continue with district-based or regional-based, for lack of better terms, professional development opportunities. But I, th I think it's time to take a look at every level of our organizational leadership and say, it's now 2022. Is this model really the best model? Do we recognize the fact that based on longevity and service alone, some of our best and brightest younger individuals 
are not eligible to be in certain leadership positions in certain levels of state district or certainly national office. That's the ultimate Because hierarchy. they haven't served in other roles yet. Because they haven't served. They haven't been a secretary for two years or a treasurer for two years or held a leadership elected position to then be eligible for the next one. And, and let me just toss this out there and then we'll, we'll you know, I'll save some of my hot air and allow you to chime in some here. But to be the president of the United States, there are three requirements and only three requirements. And I think you and I actually both qualify as we speak. You need to be 35 years of age minimum. You need to be a natural born US citizen and you must have lived the last 14 years of your life in the United States. So many of us in the NATA can run for president in the next election cycle. But many of us are not eligible to be the secretary of our own district. Right. What say you? So, yeah, that's interesting. You know, it, and uh, and it's a it's a neat point. And you touched on something that's sensitive that I'm sensitive to. And this goes back to the leadership thing. And and I do a lot of public speaking. And I do a lot of talking on this idea of experience, and especially related to the VUCA environment. Now, you mentioned early on. In 2022, is this still the best way? Um, I don't have, I have less to say on that, but more to say on the context actually does dictate what's important because in the world that we live in now, VUCA is the new normal. VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And there's a litany of literature uh, on that. My point isn't to talk about all that, it's to say that in the context of the world in which we live now, one certain things change in importance and one of those things is experience we know this for sure and that is experience isn't as important or necessary in turbulent chaotic environments when the situation around you and the, the culture in which you live is dynamic it's changing it's subject to pandemics and things like that that change the rules as you're going that's what VUCA means if we're, we're certainly living in that kind of world now especially in healthcare of all spaces that experience isn't important anymore now I don't want to say experience isn't valuable for someone to bring in ideas and perspectives. But what we have found is when a problem that you're facing is a brand new problem or a problem that hasn't been seen before, then by definition, experience doesn't add value. I've got 30 years experience as an athletic trainer. And if I'm looking at a disease, an injury, a problem that I've never seen before, the person who has two weeks of experience is every bit as qualified to contribute to that as I am. And that's where we lose it. And when we had this false, this false hierarchy is established based on the assumptions that life is predictable, stable, and routine. Well, when life is not stable and predictable and routine, then experience doesn't add the kind of value that we think it does. So I think your point um, from that vantage point is very well received and very, very appropriate to think about because we do have a lot of young professionals who are clamoring to get into certain spaces in the profession, right? And, and we might not have the opportunities for them, not numerically. That's the other reason why I think some of these districts and other committees and things are being formed. You know, I've served on 
tenure and promotion committees and things for years. And one of the things that we always talked about, and I know you probably had the same situation, is we create committees just so people can serve on them, not because we have a real need for the committee. You know, and I think that's kind of maybe what's happening here in some of these cases is, is, well, we need to create new districts and we need to create new committees and new things just so we just so there's places for people to serve. And we don't really look at the utility of what's happening. And we and so that's one problem, which means when that happens, and I think I see that happening, what that means to me is we are now saying volunteerism is the same thing as leadership. And I, I personally have an issue with that. And I think that goes to what you're talking about as well, or at least ties in there somehow is, listen, just because someone is a great volunteer and has a lot of time to give doesn't mean that they're not a great leader. You and I are cases in point where, you know, I, I consider, you know, again, I, I know people might disagree and that's fine, but, you know, I think I've got some leadership value to add, but I don't have a lot of time because I've got other things I'm doing. Right. So yeah. and versus some people who are volunteering because they've got all the time in the world because they're not being demanded by on by anybody else, which is kind of silly and funny. But they have that. And all of a sudden they're considered a great leader, not because they've done anything, but because they've got the time to just volunteer. So volunteering um, is not shouldn't be equated with leadership. And I know we do that in our profession quite a bit. Yeah, and let's be let's be really clear here. We're not saying that everyone that does this and volunteers a lot is not a bad leader. Oh, of course not. What we're saying is that there are many good leaders that are being excluded from engagement and involvement because of the criteria of longevity right. to get to those higher leadership positions. Because they can't necessarily volunteer. Because I That's don't right. think I meet the criteria to apply for any NATA board positions or anything no. like that. No, uh, like and, said, and, and neither president of the United and States. And neither do many of our existing sitting athletic trainers who are university presidents, university deans, uh, directors of a sports medicine program at large universities where they manage many people and million dollar budgets uh, because they haven't sat in those sort of build up volunteer positions that are the eligibility criteria. If it's, it's interesting, by the way, if you go back and take a look at districts, uh, and, and I wanna be careful here because I don't know the bylaws of all the districts you know, verbatim, but most of them are solely based on eligibility criteria that talk about uh, you know, served in this role prior to being able to be here or there. I'm not sure if any of them say, have evidence of leadership characteristics or a position held in leadership that qualify you to be a secretary, right. be a treasurer. And I'm not downplaying those roles. I appreciate those that do those. But to say that, that someone else can't be a president or a vice president because they didn't work their way up in the volunteer food chain right. is not a good way for us to grow in the years to come. Listen, I've had students come to me and sit in my office and tell me they wanted to do X, Y, Z. And when I asked them about why they wanted to do it, their only reason was because someday I want to be board board director, board president, something like that. And it's like, and they, they saw the writing on the wall, which is great. I, I appreciate the homework, but to me, that's pretty darn sad. Yeah. That my ambition is to do this, but I know I can't do this until I do it. So, so you're telling me you're going to take a position from someone else 
who actually would like to do that and probably would be really good at it. You have really no interest in doing it, but because it serves a means to an end, you're willing to do it, something that you don't want to do. Um, and, and I think that's a problem. I mean, I, I, again, I understand we need to be familiar with the system. I understand that there's rationale behind why that rule was put in place uh, at the beginning so that they know the ins and outs of this and you need to understand certain dynamics. I, I understand that, but there's, there's gotta be a better way but when, when you take board, people are talking about onboarding, right? I mean, right, there's got to right. be a better way to onboard our leaders and to make them serve 10 years in what, I, again, lesser roles isn't the right way. I apologize. I don't mean to, to offend anybody. It's not lesser roles, but to onboard them by serving roles they're not interested in serving in just so they're qualified to serve in the role they are interested in is right. a problem. And I'm a victim of that myself. I mean, I, I, I actually, I mean, thinking back, 20 years ago, when I started doing this stuff, I actually decided in, very intentionally to pursue other avenues to go in another direction because it was just easier, more financially, more financially beneficial as well. But I wasn't qualified to do the things that I wanted to do. And I didn't want to waste my time or anybody else's time. And, and maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe they lost something that I could have offered. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But uh, I think that's a real issue. Well, when you look at folks who are in leadership positions, say executive leadership positions now. So I start as an athletic trainer. If I become a quote unquote director of sports medicine, I might be now responsible for other disciplines that I know nothing about other than, you know, cursory interacting with them before. But now I need to understand this. If I'm in an academic setting, I was a faculty member and I become a dean. Now I oversee, you know, the accreditation of other professions who I don't know anything about per se. So that there's a natural requirement of learning other areas that you're previously unfamiliar with through the normal process of executive leadership growth. Right. Um, and, and that onboarding, as you said, it's normal. It happens, but it doesn't require two years of sitting in a chair in one spot to then be eligible to do that at the next level. And this is the model we have. The model is not designed for the rapid pace of growth and experience that our profession needs to face tomorrow. Oh, so say that again, because that's critical. The, the, the current logistics and infrastructure that we have in place is not capable of keeping up with the current pace of change. That yeah. to me is a major, major problem. So think about this, right? Look at it this way. If we wanted to improve our practice act in the state that we reside in, how many of our athletic trainers can tell you, I have money to give to my pack? How many can tell you that I can take this day off and go up to the state capitol and lobby, right? If we were to divert any of the resources that currently these human individuals are giving to a district level and bring them back to the state, human resources, any fiscal resources. Again, we can run a conference. That's great. We can have regional professional development. I'm all for that. We don't have to just go to a state or a national. That's always beneficial. But if you take that aside, anything else we do in human or fiscal resources is brought back to the state. Now we have a greater army, so to say, to fight our battles 
for professional enhancement, dignity, respect, scope of practice. That's where change happens. And if you look at even our national level model, we have 10 or 11 people, 10 or 11 people making the entire decisions of our profession. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes in closed doors. A lot of people don't know, like any member can sit on a call or in a room and listen to all these calls. So I'm not saying it's not partially, you know, our own fault per se, sure. but is this what we want? Because each of those 11, we used to have 10, but and we're going in a different direction. Now we've advanced the number of districts, but each of those 11 people, again, are representative of multiple states. Right. Would it not be better to have a voice, a very specific voice for each state to be at the table? Now, this is novel change for it us, is. but it's not it's not innovative for almost every other profession right. that understands practice acts change at state levels. Well, I, I wouldn't be it wouldn't be the first time that I or anybody else didn't say that you know some of what we do as a profession is a little behind the eight ball. You know, I mean, I know from a leadership perspective, you know, we we kind of uh, we've we've adopted things a little bit later. And there's value to that from an entrepreneurial perspective. You know, there's first to market, but then there's the innovation that comes after you see that. But so that's so there's a case for that. And I've got no real issue with that, except that we need to be innovative. We need to be thinking. We need to be forward thinking. We need to be moving in some of these different directions. And there's a lot of associations. We can't think of everybody who wants to do something to advance the profession as competition. And, and no. I think that's part of what happens. I think that's in the back of some people's mind of we've created this huge entity and now we are forced to sustain this. We got to feed this thing. Right. Well, we created this thing. Now we've got to feed it. And instead of thinking about, is that really the best strategy? Well, here, here's what I think about as we move forward with organizational structure and leadership. Anybody who's got true value to contribute to an organization at different levels should have every opportunity to do so with minimal eligibility barriers. Agreed. The barriers that we have right now are really interesting. Right. So you take a lot of us who are, for lack of a better term, senior in the profession. Well, we've got a number of years under us, but what that means is hopefully we're a little bit more stable. uh, And now we've got a situation where we've learned how to better manage and create time to do the things we want to do. And that could involve giving back to the profession, but we're not eligible because of criteria. So you have folks on the latter end of the career wanting to give back that can't. Okay. Yeah. They can find a home somewhere, but they want to do it where they're passionate about. Right. And then you have people on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And we all know what's happening to our newly vetted athletic trainers, right? We, we started early professionals committees years ago because we tracked membership decreases early on when people were becoming certified and practicing and maybe disenfranchised for any number of reasons. And we're still continuing to see this. And if we block opportunities for individuals at that level, just because they're one to two years out as certified, heck, some of them come back now, since we have master's degrees, these are second careers for them. They've got significant real world experience, but they're not eligible to be in leadership. So we have this sort of vacuum created. And I don't know about you, but, and I'm probably one of these people people are saying about, but you see a lot of the same people on multiple committees. Right. 
Do you really need to be on multiple committees? Focus on one, do your damn best, and give someone else an opportunity to be there. Well, let's so there's there's the elephant in the room, Jeff. I mean, let's let's talk about why there's so many people. It's because because the real motive. So here's here's where I'm going to get myself in trouble. The real <laughs> the real motive behind a lot of these people serving on all these committees and things has really nothing to do with serving the profession instead of serving their career. Let's talk about how many academics are on these committees versus clinicians who are on these committees. Yeah. You know, and and the fact that. Our jobs as academics, yes, allows us more freedom. Goes back to the point we made earlier. We got time to volunteer. And requires us to and, volunteer. And required because of our job. So because of right. that, but I also, my tenure, my promotion, my raises, my, right. my, my actual living depends on how many of these committees I'm on because I'm, my merit raise is based on, well, I serve on six committees, you know, kind of a thing. And I get a pat on the back at work for that. You know, whereas other people can't afford that. They don't have the time to give to that. Their jobs don't give them the freedom to do that. I mean, there's certain roles where you have to, if you want to be president of NATA, for example, that's a full-time job. Yeah. You know, it used, it used to not be that way. You know, you've got to have, you've got to have release time and only certain people can do that. I mean, a full functioning CEO of a, of a great organization can't be the president or a district board director. Uh, because they don't have the time that's required of the job. So we 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 took it out of the hands of a volunteer into the hands of prof- you got to be essentially a professional administrator in order to to be serving on these roles at these higher levels. But yet we still have these other uh, rules in place for lower down the totem pole, so to speak, of being, you know, um, volunteering and creating a what I see as like a funnel effect. You know, it's just it's just the funnel, you know, marketing strategy is what it is. Funnel and there's, and there's, look, there's, there's tremendous value for really any volunteer role, especially as you're new into volunteering, you know, learning how to work with others, meeting right. deadlines and time-wise. Right. There's a lot of pieces to that. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, discourage anyone. I, I tell the story that the very first thing I ever did, and I didn't volunteer for it, I was volunteered was I wrote the obituary column in the NATA news, okay? And here I am thinking like, why? This is like, it's not athletic training for me, but let me tell you what I learned. I, I learned about how to communicate with uh, family members of athletic trainers in difficult situations. I learned a lot about the history of athletic training from some of the careers that these individuals had. And it was, there's really value in almost every aspect you volunteer in. The Absolutely. question is, do we need to have the same kind of barriers and systematic organizational structure now that we've had for 50 plus years? Exactly. And I do want to reiterate that point because I think that's a key point. We are not saying that volunteering in the less popular um, kind of things like writing obituaries, things like that, isn't valuable or needed or anything like that. Those teach us tremendous lessons. And those are great things for young professionals. I have a very similar story and volunteering at a state level and, and a very unpopular kind of thing, but it needed to be done. And I learned a lot and met a lot of great people and it served me well. I, I want to bring us to another maybe controversial point here about this. And this is maybe we should end it on this because we are getting close to our end of our time here. But, you know, one of the things that I see, and this is just me outside perspective coming from the kind of the industries that I work with outside here is I deal a lot with employer 
issues in terms of how they hire and, you know, hiring for fit and things like that. And, and I'm wondering, I'm just wondering out loud. So I haven't vetted my thinking here a lot. So give me a little grace, everybody. But um, when you, what I've noticed is when you have a volunteer based system, in other words, what I mean by that is a system that vets its potential leaders and, and through the volunteer system, it's the equivalent of hiring for fit, which means I need these people in these other positions, secretary first, treasurer first, before they're qualified for these other roles. What you're really doing is you're, you're biasing them through their development. And, and you're, you're actually, it's a threat to what I call cognitive diversity. It's actually an anti-inclusive behavior. Completely. Because what you're doing is you're bringing people in and you're saying, well, before you're qualified to serve at the really important positions, you have to think the same way we all think. You've got to understand what we all understand. You've got to have the same history and background that we all have. And, and basically what you're doing, maybe it's not, maybe it's more obvious than, than I think it is or more, more out front. Basically, you are you're being anti-inclusive you're you're wanting you're 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 violating cognitive diversity principles and you don't want anybody with a condescending different or not condescending but a contrarian view uh in your boardroom with you because it just makes work harder what do you think about that no it's, I it's crazy no well yeah you're crazy but not because of this thought process okay, I, good. I, and i don't think i'm saying anything some everyone else out there doesn't know already but you're you're right. It's it's a predetermined viewpoint of who's coming in um, that we already know, and it's a good thing we know who we're working with and sure. we know how they operate and so on and so forth. But you know, think about this. We when we had we had a really awesome uh, conversation on the topic of DEIA uh, not too long ago, where we hosted Trevor Bates and, and Rebecca Lopez and, and Daryl Conway, and and I shared a story where. Uh, I was looking to be involved in one of our NATA activities, and part of the application for me to volunteer asked me to write a statement on diversity. And so I just brought it up to the group, right? And I said, so help me understand what we're doing this for. And, and I'm not saying that I don't support or agree with this. What I'm saying is, am I writing this because the viewer on the other end is looking for a certain answer? Right. And if my answer differs from them, will I not be included or considered to volunteer on this group or qualify? Uh, right. Or like we talked about, the best thing to do is say the question, how do you feel this would tie in and benefit most with this particular activity right. that we're doing, which is a completely different question. It's I know I don't want to change the topic of our conversation, but it's almost like you it, it's funny because in order for us to honor diversity we can't be diverse <laughs> you yeah. know it's like we everybody's got to think the same way say the same thing have the same philosophy everyone's got to support this notion this lifestyle this thing you every if you're not an ally that's that's that's, that's i mean again i don't want to change our thing but it's kind of funny isn't it and ironic that and that's what we're kind of saying here is if that's exactly what we're saying. Diversity. Let's be diverse. I that's mean, exactly oh what let's we're have saying. People hey. in the room who disagree with you and think that you're wrong, and let's see if we can get something done then. But no, we're saying no. We all have to think the same way before we can really honor diversity. That's like, duh. What are you kidding me? No, it's exactly right. And and I I, I was just um, overseas at a conference in uh, Lyon, France, and on a bus ride, 
I sat next to the woman who's from Australia, who is putting together the first woman in sports medicine conference. And I just said to her, I said, that's fascinating. I said, would you do me one favor? Make sure you have male speakers also. And she looked at me. I said, well, if you don't, and it's all women, then you're just making the same mistake that the other conferences are being accused of, of having too many male speakers. Right. And I said, if you're going to do that also, uh, and, and I'm a male, and if the perception is I don't understand the issues of the female speakers, then include me, put me at the table, right. let me better learn about this as well. Uh, but it is, it's, it, it's diversity in a way that has not been talked about often. It's usually just prejudged based on a, a color of a skin or an ethnical background. And, and like you said, the cognitive diversity piece and others is critically important. And we're, we're losing this piece now based upon eligibility criteria. So, all right. So we are way out of time. We were supposed to be a short one today, but we went. And we stayed out of jail, I think. We'll find out shortly. <laughs> so, but anyway, so that's our thoughts on it. Again, we, and we open with the invitation. Obviously, we knew this would maybe be a sensitive area. Again, non-scripted talks. These are just cra two crazy guys talking. So we, we welcome your comments uh, and thoughts on this. And uh, thanks a lot for listening. We are out.